Ginia Puzzo is here to talk about the 50th anniversary of the task force and give us her spin on our LGBTQ issues. Hi, Ginny. Hi, how are you doing? Thanks so much for having me on. Tell us about the uh, National LGBTQ Task Force and what it was like when you were their executive director in the 1980s. It was uh, an interesting moment because uh, when I when I came to the task force, I had been the executive director of the Fund for Human Dignity, which was the 501c3 that raised funds for the educational aspect of uh, the task force's work. I was very familiar with what the task force were doing and, in fact, had promoted uh, certain projects that the uh, task force had, like the Anti-Gay Violence Project. And we worked to generate local funding for local groups, for example. The task force funded the Anti-Gay Violence Project and um, CUAG in uh, San Francisco. And uh, also just the lack of education out there around violence vulnerability and making folks aware of uh, where they could go for help. At the same time, there was a great amount of pressure being exerted on police forces. The community may not recognize that as a result of um, the killing of Harvey Milk, the San Francisco community really agitated and got the first public oversight of police forces. And that's something very common today, but it was the result of what we experience in our lives that helped us change our um, activism. How did you become involved in uh, LGBTQ civil rights? The first evidence I got of feelings that I had and the fact that I couldn't express them was when I proposed to my best girlfriend at around ten and a half. And I just said innocently, you know, when we grow up, would you marry me? And the result I got from this friend who was a year or so, certainly more sophisticated than I was, she was horrified. So I said to myself, never say that again. <laughs> then the first public evidence of sexual, beyond my perception of what sexuality was, was in 1952. At that point, having been born in 1941, I was 11, 12, right in that and it was Christine Jorgensen, who came from the Bronx. I grew up in the Bronx, and it was a front-page story. And I wondered what this was about. And as a kid, you know, your mind wanders. And um, those were the formative impressions I had. And I had my first relationship when I was, like, 17 um, with a, another girl. And my first two girlfriends, ended up getting married. And because we were perceived as friends, I was always invited to these weddings. I said, I can't do this anymore. And I recognized the fact that we really had to either come out or continue to hide. And I continued to hide until um, actually Stonewall. At the time, I was in the convent. Um, we happened to be in Riverdale, New York. And uh, when I read in the paper, I was 26 at the time, I read in the paper that um, there was this riot, Stonewall riot. And I thought, God, this is great. And went down and just stood in the presence of Sheridan Square and um, the Red Lion. And uh, it was uh, kind of a spiritual and 
motivating force for me to get involved. I left the convent some months later, and um, I guess the first place I went to was the Gay Academic Union, and met people like Marty Duberman and John D'Amelio and a host of other fellow uh, bunch. And um, from there, it just screwed. I went to Lesbian Feminist Liberation in a firehouse in New York City. And, um, and that's pretty much how I got about The movement at the time was a very male, libertarian kind of movement. It was get out of our bedrooms and off our backs. The emergence of AIDS forced a transformation in the community. I ran for the State Assembly in 1978 as an open lesbian. So we knew about government. We knew virtually every feature of this world that we were banging up against, but we didn't know what was on the other side of it. Our political posture changed. We didn't just want government off our back. We wanted government to help us in this public health crisis. And I think that's a pivotal point in the task force history and in the history of the community because we found out what was on the other side and we worked the other side and we really created the kind of impact that we needed to to deal with the institutions that had historically been waste against our lives. That's what you came up against the task force and the community at that particular time. And having done what I think was a remarkable job in penetrating, establishing dialogue, utilizing the law, and changing healthcare was extraordinary. You went on to serve in the uh, Clinton administration. Uh, tell us about that. It was quite an honor to be the highest-ranking member of our community in the Clinton administration at that level. An assistant to the president is the highest position office you can occupy in the White House. And it was one of great responsibilities. Uh, a year before, I was arrested in front of the White House in a demonstration against the government because of its lack of response to AIDS. And then I spent working departments related to the health of our people and going on to social security and getting social security for persons with AIDS. We had to learn how those things worked. And knowing how they worked, I came into the Clinton administration and set up dialogue with other LGBT people who were in positions of uh, responsibility in all of the, any agency that were there was a LGBTQ person, and um, put together a strategy for how you could make change in your department. You know, change, I was a student of change, so, and I was a, a student and a teacher of change, and so you don't go anyplace and just do your job. You go someplace and you say, how can I make this more responsive to our lives and other lives. I was uh, the head of administration and management, but we set up dialogue through the official liaison with the gay community and had convened meetings with all the gay people in reasonably high positions in every agency and suggested how you 
can move in your agency, whether it's the Department of National Park Service, because people were being harassed by the park police. You don't have to look to where we need change when you come into government in those years. It's all around you. We need that change, and if you are assumed to change, then you seize an opportunity to develop relationships and put out what's possible. And it is always a privilege to serve the White House. What would you like to see happen for our LGBTQ community in the uh, Biden-Harris administration? I think um, the Biden-Harris administration has done a terrific job, and I think when you do something like create jobs, you're helping everyone. And, you know, that really is my philosophy in terms of community work. We need to recognize that fabric reality that Martin Luther King talked about and how connected we are. So jobs are important. Jobs are important to LGBTQ people. Jobs are important to every community. We need to have the Biden-Harris administration continue to push hard on immigration, continue to push hard on jobs, continue to push hard on housing, and against the white nationalist right that has always used LGBTQ people as a funding opportunity for them. All of the violence and uh, outrage that they've poured on our community all of directly affects LGBTQ people, black people, people of color, all people. And I think it's time in our movement that we recognize that we're part of a larger fabric and so jobs count, the uh, right to vote count, all of these things. I want to see the Biden-Harris administration un undo the gutting that the Supreme Court did against voting rights. That affects all of us. I want to see housing really be non-discriminatory. I want to see these things, I want to see health care not be so extraordinarily out of people's reach. Health care is an abomination as it stands. Um, of course, the Equality Act. Of course, all of these things. With LGBTQ teens already four times more likely to attempt suicide than their heterosexual peers after facing bullying incidents, what advice would you have for these kids, especially during these challenging times? I think our kids are so vulnerable, no matter where they are in the rainbow of LGBTQ plus people. They're so vulnerable. They're so bombarded with language that's incendiary about themselves. I think they most of kids believe that there is a movement here, believe that this movement cares deeply about them. I think we ought to rebel against this nonsense of banning books is an outrage, of taking whole pieces of curriculum and throwing it out the window to say 19 Project. These are things that allow our young people, whoever they are, to get to the heart of who they are in a threat-free environment. We need to continue to have, make our institutions as visible as possible and not kind of hide our lights under baskets, which I think is something that the task force needs to really re-energize or perhaps energize for the first time. What we do has to be highlighted. It can't be a secret. And therefore, it's a, like a ship, you know, a lighthouse to kids out there. Schools are being so 
pushed to the right. We've got to rebel against that. We've got to demand that our children can go to school, have gay friends, be uh, LGBTQ people openly and without fear. That's the place where kids live. They live in their home and in school. And the peer group, particularly that vulnerable age group that you're talking about with regard to suicide, schools can be a refuge. They're turning in to be battlegrounds because of the, the rise of the right white nationalist assault on curriculum and on learning. How can people get information about the uh, Task Force 50th Anniversary Celebration? The 50th Anniversary Celebrations are being widely um, publicized at the uh, website. I believe the um, publicity is ramping up now. All you have to do is go to the Task Force website, and you'll see every opportunity you have to see creative change and the anniversary uh, celebration throughout the country. What projects are you working on? Well, I found it when I left the task force, we had the first Pride March in New Paltz, New York, uh, on upstate of the Valley community, Palestine, and decided after that that we would put a study group together to examine the need for a community center in the Hudson Valley. There was none. The first thing we did was do a needs assessment and got some incredible data. Organizations that were community organizations around health had no program to render any kind of health assistance or care to LGBTQ people. Social service agencies had no educated personnel with regard to LGBTQ issues in social service. And we went through a variety of different, from senior citizen facilities, what does an LGBTQ person do as an elderly person in a home? If you've been out all your life, you go to a, a facility and have to climb in the, in the uh, closet again. So I've had an ongoing relationship. I was the founding president when the organization got its status. We got a building. We own a building. We have a major program. And that organization is going through a transition now. And I am working closely with a group that is trying to support the transition that that organization is going through. That's my major point of interest and concern right now. Is there a question you wish people would ask you? I wish they'd ask me, was it worth it? Was all these years, it's 50 years being in the movement actively, more than 50. Was it worth it? And my answer is every single bit of it has been worth it. I wrote this last year and I posted it, it was, tomorrow I'll be 81 years old. That marks 50 years in the movement. I posted this 12 years ago. It was originally posted. And it's something I affirm every single day. If I manage to write that memoir, it'll be my introduction. And what I wrote was giving thanks for having a life I could have never imagined when I was a teenager. It never occurred to me that one day I could love openly, march defiantly, and advocate passionately. I'm grateful to all that came before me, those who dared to dance as couples, marched in suits and dresses, and those who stood up and were fired, discharged, expelled, and disowned. I delight in the memories of those dark, dingy bars that allowed our imaginations to soar and our passions to play, and dreams to become plans. 
I'll always be proud of having met brave local activists in places like Oklahoma City, Kansas City, Bloomington Normal, Indiana, Huntsville, Alabama, Buffalo, New York, Denton, Texas. In those towns, there were no big donors, no A-list parties, no $1,000 ticket fundraisers. These were men and women who moved things with dollar bills and fortitude. I give thanks for every thread of those memories. Do you have a favorite quote or a mantra to get you through these difficult times? Going back to 83, in the telephone call we had with Coretta Scott King and then the following press conference when we got Audrey Lord to be able to speak at the Coalition for Conscience Conference. And I think it's a, it's a very important piece for marking the transition from kind of a stepchild to the civil rights movement into being embraced by Coretta Scott King for the first time. The next day, we had a press conference with Coretta Scott King, Joseph Lowry, and these other principals. And Coretta Scott King said, and I quote, 20 years ago, we passed the civil rights law. It is time to amend the civil rights law to include the rights of lesbians and gay men. That's the first time she said that. The first time that was uttered officially from the civil rights movement. And it was the moment that I mark as having come home to the civil rights movement. So you ask a question, when was I engaged in civil rights, civil rights movement? That's the moment that we came home and we were welcomed home. 